Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Good? Yeah. Okay. Um, what I'm going to be presenting this morning, and like Phil said, there's two more sessions later in the day by Mark Turfstra and Stephen Mullen um, that are drawing out of the same set of data, uh, comes out of some research we've been doing for the last four years on digital technology use uh, in Christian schools. Um, we got into this research uh, partly out of the awareness that there's actually very little research on technology in Christian schools. Um, there's a fair amount of research on technology, but also that research is not often asking the kinds of questions that might interest Christian schools um, in terms of the kind of effects on uh, Christian community, discipleship, formation, etc. Uh, and so we also went into this project specifically trying to ask questions about how digital technology is affecting, influencing, reshaping um, the particular mission emphases of Christian schools uh, rather than trying to get another set of numbers on whether it makes the math scores go up. Uh, so, um, uh, so that's sort of our, our, our big interest here. Uh, now we've been working on this, this project for a while. We've, we've been looking at um, a cluster of schools one or two people in the room know which schools they are, but we're keeping them anonymous in the data, so if you ask questions at the end, bear that in mind. Um, and um, so what, what the study has been, uh, we've looked at a K-12 Christian school system uh, and some control populations, uh, including uh, some alumni of the schools and alumni of other schools uh, at, a, at a college uh, and a comparison school, uh, school system. Um, we chose the school system because it had a one-to-one -one laptop program, uh, so we were looking for a technology-intensive environment. Uh, it's also got an elementary iPad program, and it was a three-year mixed methods study. Mixed methods mean that you try to come at the data multiple different ways because different methods give you different things. Right? You do a survey, you get statistical data on how many people in a population agree with a certain thing, but you don't get a lot of texture about how they're thinking about it. So you do focus groups to figure out how they're thinking about it. That doesn't give you statistics on how many people think that way. Because people can say anything in focus groups, so you also go into school and watch classrooms to try to figure out what people are actually doing in class. Um, and then, of course, there's also a whole lot of stuff that gets documented and communications and emails and meeting minutes, so we look at that as well. So our research methods, we did observations in 74 randomized class sessions where teachers didn't know we were coming until the day of, um, uh, across a period of a year. Uh, we did surveys of teachers, students, parents, and alumni at our target schools, um, and also surveys with our control populations. Uh, we did unit-long case studies following particular teachers in six classrooms. Uh, we chose six teachers who have been recommended by the school as being particularly thoughtful uh, in their integration of technology into teaching and learning, so we thought this was where we would we perhaps see the most, the most thought-through implementations. Um, and uh, we reviewed just over 28,000 school documents uh, covering about a decade uh, in the life of the schools. Uh, we winnowed those down to a little over 800 that we actually analyzed in detail and coded. Um, that was a year of my life. Um, so, um, uh, and we also did uh, 36 focus groups with administrators, parents, students, and teachers. Uh, this gave us a terrifying amount of data, and we spent just over a year coding things. Uh, and uh, we've, we've spent the last year trying to write all of this up, and the book will be out uh, sometime late next summer, early fall. Um, so part of that's just to say that what I'm going to present this morning is a little slice of what we've been looking at. This is not the whole topic of the project. It's one of our little strands of data. There'll be two more later in the day, but the book has 42 chapters. Uh, so uh, we'll, uh, th there's other things to find out. So um, if you're interested in this topic, uh, there's more. Um, so first, why this question? Why this question about connecting to the outside world? 
well, a big reason was that this was actually a question that was in the forefront of the school's mind, and we tried to let ourselves be guided by the emphases that the school was articulating on the ground. Um, an administrator said in a focus group, the argument for technology was very easy to make. The laptop's transforming the world. If we're not preparing our kids to use laptops, we're not meeting our mission. It makes no sense to have a mission that states boldly we're going to make people that bring change to the world and send them out not having prepared them to use that tool in transformational ways. So in the minds of school administrators, this sense of needing to have an impact on the world after school was a major part of the rationale for adopting technology in the first place. Uh, that somehow it had to serve the mission of uh, having a, a, a transformational presence in the world outside the school. Um, and, and so that was part of the argument for setting it up. Students had absorbed this, this narrative as well. If you think about it with technology, I think that's really cool because we can, there are so many positives that can, in a sense, override the negatives. So we can use our laptops to do so many different cool things that we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have it. And I feel like we can really bring change to the world for Christ through our laptops, said a student. Right, so, uh, so a lot of students were brought in as well. So, so part of what justifies having laptops is it lets you bring Christian change to the world. Right? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a means to that end. Um, a teacher said, I think initially when the mission statement was written, it was more the bringing change to the world for Christ was after graduation. It was something you did when you were finished with this process. And I should say at this point, we fictionalized the mission statement but to contain some emphases that were in the original one. So it's not the real mission statement. But... Uh, um, it was more bringing change to the world for Christ was after graduation. It was something you did when you were finished with this process. Now it's what are you going to do today? What are you going to do this afternoon? What are you going to do this hour? And so it brought that part of the mission into a, back into a live approach as opposed to something in the future. I think that was a significant change for us. It was not something you were working towards. It was something you were involved in right now. So this was another theme as they thought about investing in technology. The mission statement came first. It had this emphasis on having an influence on the world outside school, um, and laptops seem to bring that from the future after you graduated to into the classroom right now, that you could actually get students working on activities uh, that could be connecting them with the world outside the school digitally, uh, and that right now in the classroom you could begin to practice this mission emphasis. So this is one of the things we heard in focus groups, that it changed the way we thought about this part of the mission. It brought it from the future back into the present. Another change um, described by an administrator, an administrator said we enlarged the audience. Modern Christian school was stuck, this is Modern Christian school is our pseudonym for the school, um, was stuck on a side street and was not extending its influence beyond the walls. And I think this was a tool that extended our influence and our opportunity. And I think that changed, that changed the game considerably. Now that's not what's happening in first grade necessarily, but it's what's happening pretty significantly at the high school, middle school level. And I think it's coming along as first graders email material to their parents and their grandparents is starting to enlarge their world and their understanding of how they can impact their world in the name of Christ. So again, this is the sense that right in the classroom you can get students engaged in a project of reaching out beyond the walls of the classroom was part of the rationale we kept hearing uh, for why laptops were, a, were an important thing for the school. Um, so here's our, here's our, our fictionalized version of the, uh, of the school's mission. The modern Christian school's community exists to prepare the minds and nurture the lives of a student body that will bring change to the world for Christ. I'm just going to look at some uh, survey stats that will just fill out a little further the reason why this was a core question we wanted to, to investigate, why we focused on the Change the World for Christ piece in this slice of the data. Um, so if we look at overall statistics, um, and Steve's our statistician, so he can leap in and tell me if I say something stupid at this point. Um, if you ask the general question, did the school's use of technology support the school's mission? Uh, did, did, you know, schools got a, got a Christian mission, did getting laptops help the mission? But it turns out most people think yes, right? it's, uh, that it's supporting the mission. And very few people are willing to say the opposite. 
A um, little bit different between teachers and parents, but uh, teachers are pretty confident that, uh, that this supports the mission, um, and very, very few are saying, are saying no, it diminished the mission. Uh, like for most, it was at least status quo, um, and a, a significant majority thought it was helping. But if we break that down, because this mission statement has got three basic ideas in. There's a, there's a prepare the minds piece, there's a nurture the lives piece, and there's a bring change to the world for Christ piece. So what if we break down the confidence question by those three parts of the mission? Well, first of all, if we look at the preparing minds, um, we had a number of questions in our survey that got at this different ways. It's another way of trying to make your data reliable. If you ask the same question several different ways and you still see the same pattern of answers, maybe you're onto something. Um, so, did technology improve inquiry skills? Did it develop critical thinking and problem solving? Did it help students understand difficult ideas? Did it help them develop ideas that went beyond what was presented in class? On all of those, you see pretty high numbers um, that are saying, yes, technology is helping us to do those things. Um, now, I'm not presenting on this this morning, but I'll just sort of throw in the slight caveat that you also see some pretty high numbers on some counter questions on things like, uh, did using technology help me to skim through texts to find the answer without understanding them? Right? So it's not all good on the academic side here. There's some more complex stuff going on in there that I don't have time to, to dive into this morning. Um, but for the sake of just looking at overall confidence in this part of the mission statement, um, there's a pretty high level of confidence overall that somehow it's helping academics. Um, if we go to the Nurturing Lives one, the numbers change pretty drastically. Um, so did, is it enabling a focus on character formation? Is it contributing positively to the formation of a spiritually enriching learning environment? Is it helping us encourage the, world, uh, encourage the exploration of the world from a biblical perspective? Uh, if you remember here, we were up in the 70s, 80s in terms of levels of confidence. Here, we're actually 50s down to 30s um, in terms of proportion of the community that are confident that technology is helping with those things. So that's already an interesting distinction, and there's a whole section of the book trying to dive into this piece that don't have time to go into this morning, because we're really interested right here in this one, which is change the world. Um, is technology helping us bring change the world, change the world for Christ? Connect students in the school to the world outside of the school with a positive Christian influence. Um, here, we're actually, we're back up pretty high here. Teachers help the school impact the world for Christ in ways that were not possible before. Teachers think yes. Parents also, the majority, think yes. Not quite as high as the teachers, but a majority are positive. Um, in your classroom, how well do teachers encourage students to talk about how well they think using technology can be used to change the world for Christ? The interesting thing here was teachers were not very confident they were doing this well. Um, so this is already another why thing, like a good reason to ask questions here is... is Teachers seem to be really confident that it's a good thing, and yet not very confident that they're doing it well. Um, and in fact, students were more confident that teachers were doing it well than teachers were that teachers were doing it well. Uh, so, um, uh, so maybe that just means that the administrators need to encourage the teachers more or something, I don't know. But um, encourage students, how often do teachers talk about this, right? How often in class are students encouraged to talk about how they think using technology can be used to change the world for Christ? Students thought this happened a lot. Teachers didn't think it happened very much. That's also kind of interesting, right? That students are reporting hearing it more often than teachers are reporting saying it. Ponder that for just a second. <laughs> so, um, of course, we can immediately imagine some reasons for this, right? If, if you teach on something once in the semester and you do a really good job and it's really memorable... Um, then the student remembers that they heard the teacher talk about it. You might not do it for the next three months, right? But the student still remembers. 
Um, or maybe the student goes through the school day and they encounter six different teachers, right? And two of them are really vocal and articulate about this, and then you ask the student, how often do your teachers talk about this? Well, I heard it every day, mm -hmm. right, from two teachers, but maybe not from the other four. So there's a lot of reasons why we might see these kinds of, these kinds of slippages. Um, notice the parents... Apparently the students are coming home and telling their parents that they talked about this in school because the parents are pretty confident it's happening all the time. Right? So, so you start looking at these figures and it just throws up some interesting questions. Right? So this is another part of the why focus on this kind of question. So just to summarize so far, a big part of the school's rationale for having technology in the first place was this going to help us connect with the world outside the classroom and that helps us fulfill our Christian mission. So we need to try to figure out whether that's happening. Um, when we look at survey data, we find these interesting differences between what teachers think is happening, what teachers are confident about is happening, what students think is happening, and so on. So it just seems like there's some things to, to dig into here to try to figure out what's going on. Now, I'm going to start with a couple of sort of fireworks examples. Um, like we saw some beautiful examples of this happening. Um, so here's a student quote. We just have a lot more skills, I feel like, than other people, even comparing I have friends who go to another school. They don't have a lot of technology there. So in comparison with them, I feel like I have a lot more skills that can be used to bring change to the world. For example, I have a world cultures class. And I just emailed someone across the world in Ghana and talked to them about my project and how we can fight the problem of stereotyping of people with disabilities in Ghana. So we're already bringing change to the world, and we just did high school. Um, there's a couple of interesting things already going on here in this, in this example. Um, I mean, first, another little piece of evidence that students have internalized the mission statement. They will quote fragments of it back to you when they talk about their own work. Um, and um, the, yeah, the student is experiencing learning activities where they get, to they get to connect directly to settings way beyond the physical limitations of the school. Uh, and the, the student's connecting that to their own story about their own formation. So... The student's impressed that they're able to reach out and touch the world and they're still in high school, right? So, so that's, apart from the actual, you know, whatever academic learning gain there was in the activity, there's also this sense of, like, wow, I can have an effect on the world. I can change things, right? That seems to be one of the, one of the things that we're hearing from, from some students. Um, it's a slightly longer one from another student, but it's kind of fun, so I kept the whole of it. Partner and I, for our biology project, we had to research green fluorescent protein. It was super interesting. And it's kind of boring if you had surface level, but we were doing research or whatever. A green fluorescent protein is fairly new, so the people who discovered it and made advancements in it are still alive. And all of their information is online, and you can email almost every one of them. So we emailed. There was this website of five different people or whatever, and we just looked up their name, and they wrote a textbook on green fluorescent protein or something like that, and we got a response from a dude who's the head of the department at Rutgers University, and he just went off on so much stuff that it was just crazy that he responded and that he was interested enough, and he invited me and his partner to one of his classes. I was... Sorry, I can't quite make it out to the Northeast, but it was still really, really cool. It was really exciting. Like, you don't get that in school a lot. So it made it really exciting to learn about. We emailed back and forth three or four times. So, yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> uh, so, so we were looking across narratives like this from students in our focus groups, right? You know, just students telling us about these super cool things they got to do because they were digitally connected, where they got to talk to experts in other locations. Um, we had a group of students who had a conversation with an ambassador in another country about a particular issue that was going on there. Um, so just these great learning opportunities that, are, that were really giving students, again, both a concrete sense that their world was larger than the location of the school, um, a sense that they could connect to that world and interact with it, um, and this level of excitement that I, this, this wasn't what I was expecting to do in school today, but it's pretty cool I get to actually connect with the people who uh, brought up the knowledge. 
Um, because you start hearing these exciting examples in focus groups, and then you start having to ask questions like, how typical is this? Uh, even this last student, an interesting little phrase here. Like, you don't get that in school a lot. Now, this is the student who's in the school with the technology program that's, that's connecting to the world, and yet the student's still saying, this might not be my typical class. So, so where does this fit into the bigger scheme of things, or what questions do we need to ask around the edge of this? Um, so we're going to try and ask some critical questions about this, not in order, and I want to emphasize here, not to negate what we just heard. Because when students are encountering good examples of this, they're really excited and there's some fantastic learning happening. Um, and it's connecting to the sense of the, their sense of their presence in the world as Christians. Um, but still, some questions around the edges of this. Um, first of all, how does digital technology connect us to the rest of the world? I'll spend a few minutes on that because as we coded the focus groups and broke down what people were saying, we heard four different accounts of what it was about technology that helped you connect with the world outside the school. Um, and they were to do with access, service, witness, and exchange. So I'll unpack each of those briefly. So let's start with access. This one's pretty obvious. Your laptop just lets you get at things that you can't get at otherwise. Right? You know, websites, information, videos, other people, etc. You just you have this conduit that you can you can get information that you would not have been able to get uh, if all you had was the book that was printed eight years ago. Um, so, um, eighty-three percent of teachers on the surveys and seventy-five percent of students agreed that technology use in school had created opportunities to learn about the experiences and needs of people outside the community. Uh, now, I'll underline the wording of this question because you'll see some similar but slightly different questions later. This is opportunities to learn about the experiences of needs of people outside the community. The stuff happening out there, I get to find out about it. So this is access to information. It's information flowing into the school. A teacher said, if you're going to differentiate and if each student's going to pursue their passion, you have to be able to tap into resources that we don't have access to inside the four concrete wall building. Teachers were very positive about the idea that when you've got students with different interests, and you don't have all the information they need. Uh, digital technology lets them connect with information they need to pursue the thing they want to pursue, rather than the thing that you happen to already have a book on at the back of the classroom. Uh, so this was seen as a benefit, right, that it basically enabled differentiation, because students can get information that the teacher doesn't have. Um, quick little student quote. We did a lot of talking with experts in that area through email. I think this is a, a short but cool student sentence. Right? You know, you're, you're learning about topic X, you get to talk with experts. Uh, as a teacher, you're not the expert on every topic that the student is interested in, no matter how long you've studied. Uh, so you can connect students with people who are more expert than yourself. Service. We had a number of students talking about how laptops and email and texting and so on fed into their ideas of how service project happens. 56% of students and 41% of parents, notice it's a bit lower than the access one, felt that technology use in school had created opportunities to respond to the needs of others outside the community. Remember, the first question was learn about. Right? We had a very high level of confidence that it helps us learn about. We've still got a kind of a, you know, there's, there's some positivity here, but it's not as overwhelming as the first one, that it also helps us respond to actually reach out and help. Individual students told us things like, for spring break, I'm going to California with a bunch of my friends. We decided to focus our trip on service, so I looked up all kinds of organizations in Southern California where we're going, and I was able to email them all and get responses from them. So we're going to do a bunch of service projects over spring break, all using my laptop and email. 
We heard this from a few students who basically said, you know, I spent my summer volunteering and so on, and all those connections were made through finding websites of, uh, uh, of volunteer organizations or connecting through email and so on. So again, this was another story that seemed to be in the head of a number of students that because I'd learned that I can use digital technology to connect with people on a much wider scale than the school, I can use that to create service <coughs> opportunities. Uh, and we heard a number of students talking about that. It was really encouraging. Um, we also heard examples of students talking about using technology to actually directly help nonprofit organizations. Just going there and videotaping and then showing them our project, they asked us to come back and keep help, continue helping out there. This is from a much longer description of connecting with a local nonprofit and helping them make some video material uh, that they needed using skills that have been learned in the technology program in school. So we saw, heard a number of examples of this, trying to use technology not just to get information, but to, uh, to serve the communities that you're connecting with. Witness was the third theme. Um, we occasionally in focus groups heard people talking about things like being able to post Christian material to your Facebook feed and you know, this kind of thing, but not very much. That wasn't really what people were into. Um, we saw this theme in comments from administrators and teachers, but rarely from students. Right? The, the service theme we heard quite a bit from students in focus groups. The witness one was an administrator thing, um, much more, and, uh, and sometimes teachers. Uh, and so an administrator said about the tech program, it was a great way to share our story. It was a great way to help other schools thinking about transforming teaching and learning. And another administrator said, we shared everything. We didn't ever hold back a document or anything from anybody. It really raised our status in some sense in the nation. It's a sense of somehow that, that keeping your technology program up to date and sharing expertise with other schools in your area is a form of sort of witness to the values of your program because you get in conversation with a whole bunch of other programs and other schools uh, and so on. That was another part of the story about what was beneficial about the program. But again, that was something that administrators talked about. We didn't, we didn't really hear that as a student theme. And then the final one's exchange. So what we had in mind here was other examples where you're not just getting information from the world or kicking products out into the world, but this actually enables some back and forth. You actually get in dialogue with people. Uh, and we had some examples of this. 63% of students felt the school's technology use had helped them communicate with people outside their community. So there's learn about, there's meet the needs of, and then there's communicate with. Uh, like in my Spanish 3 class last year, we had seven sections, so we didn't want to ask a guest speaker to come in for the whole day. So we FaceTimed with a couple of people from the community just for 10 minutes in class, and they could ask questions, and that worked really well just with our iPhones through Apple TV. They were on the screen, and I could just go around the room and show the kids asking the questions. Uh, so especially from uh, uh, Spanish classes, we had a number of examples of students being connected with people in other countries and having direct conversations with them, and learning things from them as well as telling them things. Sometimes this was directly used to work on issues like stereotyping. Um, so there's a description of uh, a connection between students at the school and students at a school in another country where the students in, at the school in the other country had offered the viewpoint that all Americans are overweight, and, um, which is a common stereotype of North America, outside North America. And uh, so since we have technology at our fingertips, we just responded to everything they said, you know, and we kind of guided some of their stereotypes into the right direction. And then they said we were all fat, so we took a picture of our class to show them that we're not all fat and sent it to them. Uh, so there was this, uh, this sense of trying to set up conversations where there's some learning going on on both sides, right? And it, it enables a two-way exchange uh, rather than just downloading information. Um, and one more example of that was a teacher who had been using Skype to actually connect with another school in the local community with the awareness that there had been some friction with that school at sporting events. And so they intentionally set up a Skype exchange with a classroom in the other school. Um, so our goal when I'm talking, this other teacher and I would work at seeing and learning from each other 
what each of us needed. We need diversity, and so seeing kids who are in your same town, very different from you are, doing the same things, because their curriculum's the same as ours. We both use reading workshop. That was our goal. So then we connected via Skype, and we sat, and we talked, and we shared, and we showed each, other, each other's classrooms, and we did mini-interviews with just a few kids and a teacher and that kind of thing, and showed each other what we were working on. And I think that's a way to grow. I mean, we're growing God's kingdom by doing that. We're learning about our own town and people living in our town. That was a really cool experience. So this attempt just to do direct reconciliation, just to, to connect populations that maybe normally just shout things at each other at sports games and, uh, uh, and actually have some, some exchange going on. So those were the four kinds of connection to the outside world that we saw with any regularity in focus group data. Uh, getting information, finding out about service opportunities, um, some talk about the way it enables you to, to witness to other people about the values of your program, and uh, some examples of this two-way exchange where learning happens on, on both sides. Now, so this is just the summary of what I just said. Right? Access, service, witness, and exchange. Um, sounds great. So... Let's look at a few of the, the places where the, there's some frayed spots in this, this fabric. Um, so I'm going to look at a number of questions here um, and, and pull out some, some data on each one. How extensive is the access? Um, is it true that students can access the entire world from the device in their classroom, which is the way we like to talk about it, or certainly the way the tech industry likes to talk about it? What are the limitations on that access? Um, is online communication adequate? Um, is the, what, what's missing, what gets missed in the Skype conversation? Uh, were there any experience, any limitations around uh, digit communicating digitally? Um, is outward engagement sustainable? If you look at some of these best case examples, they involve quite a lot of work to set up. Can you do that every week? <coughs> Are the best stories typical? We found after a little while in focus groups, we started having the same story narrated back to us by different groups. And so you start wondering, you know, is this, is this what's going on normally in the school, or is it one classroom uh, that's generating all these stories? Um, what about the risks? So you've got a device sitting right in your room that gives your student access to the entire world, and your ability to regulate the content of your curriculum just went out the window. Um, your ability to regulate the moral boundaries of your school just went out the window. Your ability to regulate the worldview boundaries of your school just went out the window. Because if the student wants to sit in class and ask somebody with a totally different worldview what they think about what you just said as the teacher, they can do that. Um, so how do we think about that whole, the fact that we just basically opened a big gate? So what about, is there a downside to, to some of this and how's the school dealing with that? And what practices frame engagement? So if we are connecting to the world outside school, how are we connecting with the world outside school? And how do we build intentional practices that shape the mode of engagement uh, when you reach out to people outside? So I'll unpack each one of, those, uh, each one of these a little bit. Um, as we go through. This might just be a good place for me to pause, though, because I've sort of laid out, stress me, I've laid out kind of the positive side, and I'm going to question a little. So any sort of questions on the first half at this point? Anything that's not clear, because I've tried to sort of set up a platform for where I'm going next. Are the interviews mostly with high school students, or is it... High school down to middle school. Okay. Um, yeah, we didn't do elementary school focus groups. Okay, so how extensive is access? Um, pretty extensive, uh, but we also kept running into things like this. Um, 
We wrote to the president of Syria and a group against ISIS in the US to see if we could get any response. Nobody answered, but it was still part of the project. <laughs> we, we found this setting up specific dilemmas for students because the project had been set up with credit for connecting with experts outside the classroom, and then significant numbers of students find that the experts outside the classroom don't respond to their emails. Now they're stuck on their project um, because there's something they've got to get that they can't get. So in fact, rather than opening up access, it actually told them they had to have access and then they found out they didn't have access because it turned out the president of Syria had other things to do that day. Um, so um, uh, now, this was actually kind of fascinating because I, I vividly remember being in one focus group and a teacher's talking with a little bit of righteous indignation about how all of her students had written to a certain museum in a certain other city asking this question about the topic of the museum and, and the museum had sent this letter back saying, I'm sorry, we don't have time to help with school projects. Um, and the teacher was a little bit mad about this. Uh, but I was, I was sort of thinking, so in your imagination, just scale this up to every school in Michigan. right? And every school in Michigan has 30 kids write to this museum and say, what's the answer to this question? The museum's going to have to hire three people right, to, to deal with that kind of volume of requests. So is some of this the kind of thing that only works on a small scale and only works occasionally? And in fact, as soon as you scale it up, it might not work anymore because people aren't going to field that many emails. Um, I, mean, I know this myself. I regularly get emails for helping with people's projects. And whether I respond to them depends how many I got in the last month. Um, so it's, uh, is there actually a, a, a limiter somewhere on this? Um, a teacher said, I have 42 students this year. They each have to do at least one. This is one connection to the outside world. We get five to ten meaningful responses and a few form letters, and most of the time there's no response at all. Uh, so here's somebody actually putting some proportions on this, right? I told 42 students they had to connect with an external expert. Um, five to ten replied meaningfully. A few got form letters, the rest did nothing. So we've now set up a learning activity in which 37 of the students can't complete it as described uh, and need a substitution. So that's, now I'm not saying that's a necessarily a fatal flaw in this. I mean, it's still cool for the students to make a connection, but it's certainly something to think about in designing these kinds of learning activities. Um, Balanced against that, last semester we had a group with a back and forth with the U.S. ambassador in Pakistan on honor killings. How cool is that, right? <laughs> it's, uh, like, I wish I'd been able to do that in school. So, so there's this real kind of tension between um, a subset of, as the student put it, super cool examples, and then other students who are kind of stymied in their work and feel like they're not able to make progress with their project and they're not getting the connection the other student had. Um, there's some stuff to work on in there. Um, I know many people who've like called a certain author that they've read, he's never answered, another student said. Another student told us that that author had answered, so one time. So again, there's this same kind of tension. Um, a second question, is online communication enough? Now, we heard awareness from teachers that online communication sometimes wasn't enough, but might still be a good thing. Um, so we talked to a teacher who had a, a program where students would go out and do kind of mini internships with local businesses and learn about what they were doing in those businesses. And this teacher said, in the past, I've had them go visit those businesses and spend time with the owners, but our transportation policy makes that a little difficult this year. So they're paired up electronically, and they can share the document back and forth and get some feedback from somebody who's doing what they're hoping to do down the road. I think they get less feedback because it's easier to sit down for an hour with somebody who has dedicated time and get conversations, getting someone on the other end to really invest in putting time in. It takes a lot more time for them to do that. That face-to-face -face conversation is better, in all honesty. Plus, they can see things, and being in this business would spark a question in a kid. And they say, what about that? What about this? It doesn't happen electronically. 
So this was my second choice, but a good second choice. It wouldn't have worked otherwise. There'd be no pairing if that didn't exist better than nothing. Um, so this is a fascinating answer because, you know, on the one hand, the teacher's recognizing digital technology is enabling access to the outside world because something's changed in the transportation realities and I can't take kids all over the region to these businesses anymore without more hassle than, than it's worth. Um, but I still want this learning. So we set up a second best substitute. Digital technology lets us do that. If I didn't have this, I would have had to cancel the program. But at the same time, the awareness that it works differently when the students are putting questions into a Google Doc and sending it over to the person at the business and getting replies and so on, you don't have the immediate environment for the student to suddenly notice fascinating things they never thought of before and ask questions about them. The students can only ask the questions they think about while they're sitting in a classroom. And that's a different set of questions than the questions you think about when you're actually in the business environment. So it changes the questions students are asking. It also changes the amount of time the business person invests in putting back in. Imagine this yourself. Right? You're at work and a kid from another school comes and asks to sit down with you for an hour to talk about your job. How much are you going to give them compared to you get a link to a Google Doc and get asked to put some comments on it? Right? it, it changes the amount and the quality and the quantity of feedback. Um, so again, we saw some complexity in this, of, of digital technology certainly opening up access, but also constraining that access in certain specific ways. Is it sustainable? <coughs> we heard lines like this in the focus groups. They were described to us a fantastic example of connecting with a community in Argentina or something during class and doing this whole project around it. And then that was the first three years. I haven't done it lately. Um, so this sense that sometimes for teachers, they've had this fabulous idea of how you could do this real reach out kind of project, and it was great, and it took a lot of energy to sustain, uh, because you've got to do all the arranging with somebody else in another time zone, and you've got to set up the tech and get it working right, and you've got to design the project, and you've got to manage the communication, and so on. And so after a while, you kind of lapse back into what you were doing before, because it takes a lot of effort to keep the new thing running. Um, Another project, we didn't get to extend it as much as we wanted purely because of the time of year that it is. For the four or five times we did it, it was a really interesting experience, and I hope it grows in the future. But I have a little too much on my plate for it to grow right now. Um, I can't prove this from the data except just by comparing data in other parts of what we're talking about and surmising. But uh, it would probably be no surprise to you that one of the other things we've looked at in detail is just how using technology has significantly increased teachers' workload um, in terms of communications from parents, communications with students, tracking information, um, researching information to present in class, uh, and so on. Quite a significant increase in overall workload and overall time investment. And then on top of that, you need to be designing and running innovative, interactive, connecting with the outside world, flagship projects, and it turns out at some point there aren't enough sleep hours in the day. Uh, and so we started seeing these signs in the data that sometimes the best examples are kind of peak experiences, um, but it's difficult to sustain them as the, as the common learning pattern, given all the other things um, that people have to do. So this leads us into question four, which is kind of a key question. How typical are these best examples? Um, so again, we, we you know, we heard about the talking to the U.S. ambassador in Pakistan. We heard about the emailing with Ghana. We heard about the um, the consultations with the fashion designer in South America, and so on. Um, how typical to students' school experience are those examples? Or are we just hearing a small number of hero stories that are not actually representative of learning? We did 74 observations of 30 to 45 minutes each in randomly selected classrooms. So. 
you know, we, we, we had a random selection process. We didn't tell the teacher until the morning off that we were coming because we didn't want them to change their lesson plan. We wanted to see the lesson that would have happened if we hadn't come. Uh, so shortly before the lesson, we, we let the teacher know. We spread this across 74 different classrooms um, and in random sequence and at different age levels. We observed 479 learning activities. Uh, so we, we actually coded down how many distinct learning activities happened during these 74 classrooms. Um, so how many of the 479 learning activities do you think involved connecting with the world outside the school using digital technology? Um, six. <laughs> so here's a first clue that the best stories might not be the whole story. Um, because we tried pretty hard to see this happening, right? But it was... It was it was a bit like hunting shy wild game in the, in the game reserve, right? It's, you know, the, the local guide assures you that it's been spotted in the game reserve and uh, that it sometimes comes out at this time of day, uh, but it was a little bit hard to actually catch it happening. Um, so then we looked at the case study observations, because remember the case study teachers were selected because they were particularly thoughtful in their integration of technology with teaching and learning and with faith. So... In a number of places in our study, we saw more of something happening in the case study classrooms than when we did randomized observations. So if you like, the randomized observations are more like lowest common denominator, whereas the case studies are more like best case scenario. Um, so we watched activities in three classrooms, two elementary and one high school, that prime students for future engagement through technology with the outside world. So for example, you've got a learning, class in task, a learning activity in class where... Um, the teacher's talking with the students about how to write a blog post, and at some time in the future you can write a blog post, but you're not actually communicating with anybody outside the school right now, but you're pointing towards it. So we saw three activities during our case studies that did that, um, and we saw no activities used to actually connect with the outside world during class um, in our case study observation. Now again, this doesn't mean they're not happening, right? We believe the people in the focus groups who told us those stories about the great activities. It just means they're not actually very frequent. Uh, because, I mean, obviously we still only saw a small percentage of the overall things going on in, in classrooms, right? So no doubt we missed stuff. Um, but nevertheless, this is a reasonably large data slice, so it's really not happening as much as people think it's happening. Uh, because the other thing we heard in the focus groups is the more the, more the great stories get re-narrated, the more we all start to believe that we do this a lot, right? Because we hear about it all the time. And it turns out it's pretty hard to find it happening. Um, now compare this with 63% of students believed that the school's technology use had helped them communicate with people outside their community. Now, pause on this because, again, I'm trying to give you sort of the, the, the optimism and the pessimism all at the same time because they're both true, right? Somehow, even with the level that it's happening right now, students think it's helping, right? So even though it's only happening sometimes, the students still seem to be gaining from it, right? So this is not like a totally pessimistic... All those bright hopes were a total wish fulfillment fantasy and so on, right? It's, it's not happening as often as people say it's happening, and students are still reporting positive learning from it. Both those things are true. 38% of parents have the same conviction. That's not an overwhelming vote of confidence. 57% um, of students and 56% of alumni agreed that the technology program had prepared them for Christian engagement with the world. Again, that's over half. It's a majority. Um, and when we compared that with the control group of alumni in other Christian schools, uh, our control group was 36%. So this is the other thing, is how much connection to the outside world is normal? We don't know. I mean, you know, what's the benchmark? Right? How often should you do this? Nobody knows. Um, this is all experimental. 
So 57% said it helped them doesn't sound very high until we, you then look at the control school and get 36%. And you see maybe something good's happening here. It does seem like students are feeling more helped on this topic in this school with its technology program than in another school that didn't have as intensive a technology program. Right? So this is where statistics land you. It's messy. So. What about risks? Um, this is a whole other topic. I threw it in here because it's relevant, uh, but we really need another hour to talk about this properly. We've got a bunch of data on things like the effectiveness of filtering and monitoring and um, communications with parents and, uh, and so on, and I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. Um, but I wanted to pull out a few pieces around, again, just how the school's trying to think about this connection to the outside world. Parents were sensitive to the risks, unsurprisingly. That's one reason why we have them here, one parent said, at least in my mind. One reason why I have my daughter here is not to have to engage in that type of world. So for some parents, like, not having to connect to the outside world was actually a you know, plus for the, uh, uh, for the school. I, I, like, what the, part of what they're looking to the school for is protection. The reason I sent my kid here is so they don't see bad stuff on the internet. Uh, we heard from some parents. Um, in fact, parents were much more likely than teachers or administrators to think of the dangers in internet, in the, of the internet primarily in terms of the danger of access to sexual material on the internet. Right? That, that, was the, that was sort of the, the fear. And in terms of purity and creating safe boundaries and, and keeping everything kind of closed down and, and making sure stuff doesn't get in and out. Um, teachers too talked about what do we need to help students pull, back, pull away back from. Right? It's not all about pushing students into more access. Sometimes it's about drawing students back from things they're accessing too much or accessing them they shouldn't be. So this sort of twofold movement of wanting to sort of engage the world but also withdraw from the world in certain ways. Um, another parent, this is a perfect time in fifth grade to talk about bad things on the internet because they talk about health now when we start talking about sex. So this would be a good, a good layer in fifth grade to be like, side note, internet pornography, internet bad things, or however. I'm not a teacher. But another layer, if we're going to teach them to abstain, if we're going to teach them to value their body, then technology is part of that. If they're doing booty shakes on Snapchat, that's not good purity. So that should be talked about in the health, purity, whatever. Again, this, this connection here between internet pornography and the internet bad things, right? That these two things sort of quite closely connected in, in the minds of parents. And rightly so. Um, when we talk to teachers and administrators, we had a slightly different way of talking about this. We're not perfect at an administrator. If you're looking for the perfect school, we aren't it. When you have 800 sinners in one building, you're going to have some sin. Um, so, like, sometimes parents really did sound like they got this story of, like, why hasn't my Christian school eliminated sin yet? Um, and uh, whereas the teachers and administrators were much more aware of, like, you know, students are going to get into some stuff. And, uh, and that's just the reality of being in a school with 800 people in it. And so what we actually need is to figure out how to, how to deal with that. In fact, we had a number of teachers talking about wanting their school to be a safe place to fail and begin to help students. Um, it's again, these two slightly different ways of telling the story. Like, we want the Christian school to be a place that's pure, where we, you know, we lock everything down sufficiently that bad stuff doesn't happen. Or do we want the Christian school to be the place where students can actually fail, can experience help, guidance, reconciliation, um, and be sort of nurtured along through that process with grace, etc. Um, that was just a little bit of a difference between the way teachers and parents that we talked to tended to tell that story. Uh, and I think this is actually a, um, a ripe area for, for some communication between schools and parents. Because sometimes it's not even that the teachers and the parents are on a totally different page, right? They both don't want the kids to look at porn. 
Um, but they're just framing that story in slightly different ways, and it generates slightly different expectations. And so there's, there's, I think there's room for some communication around that. Because the teachers were asking themselves questions like this. This is one of my favorite quotes from a teacher. Now, how do I show them appropriate things, but that are still authentic, without them being too mature, or something their parents wouldn't approve of? This sort of captures in a nice condensed sentence some of the challenges for teachers planning lesson material. Like, I want to connect them to the outside world. I want to show them all of life. I want to give them authentic material. I don't want an artificial Christian school bubble. And yet, it's got to be appropriate things. And I've got to think about the maturity level. And I've constantly got to think about whether a parent's not going to like what I just brought up in class. Right? So this multiple set of pressures now on curriculum that have intensified because what, course, what used to happen was somebody wrote the textbook and it went through lots of vetting and you chose it and you already knew what was on page 272, even if you'd never read the book. Uh, whereas now there's this much more volatile attempt to try to figure out on a day-to-day basis. I think this is another thing, you know, we looked at teachers' increased workload, but another of the increased challenge, challenges for teachers is having to make these real-time, in-the-moment decisions about the politics of curriculum um, on a day-to-day basis, as so students do searches online and research projects, etc. I think my go-to at the end of the day is always, as much as I can, I want them to see what's real. I think I'd always rather have them exposed to it and have the conversation than not expose them to it. They need to see what the real world is. But they also can have a conversation about what that means and what we believe. Now, another thing that came up under this heading that we hadn't foreseen that we thought was interesting, um, an administrator said, I was always surprised, like every time we get a complaint about porn or that kind of stuff, I was always shocked that we never... I don't think I one time filled a complaint about materialism. And if the laptop truly degrades the Christian walk, I think materialism is a far greater danger to the vast majority of the Christian school crowd. And I caught, I don't know how to say this right, we literally in my time there, what one time caught a kid with porn at school, that's on the school device. Um, The porn incidences almost always happen off-site, off-campus, but catching kids shopping during class, all the time, right? All the time. We had this quote from a student about their Bible class. They were praising their Bible teacher for the use of laptops. And this is why the student thought that it was really cool to use laptops in Bible class. In some ways it's good because you can obviously type faster on your computer and you can take notes faster, you can share them faster, and email faster. Also in that class, because once you get your notes done and the teacher is talking, you can go shopping. Or whatever you do, whatever you want. Um, students are pretty open about this. <laughs> It's great that we learn with laptops because you can type the notes faster. That means you get things done quicker, which means you can go shopping in Bible class. Um, What kind of faith formation, spiritual formation is going on when students are sitting at the back of Bible class buying shoes, monster truck tires, um, sports equipment? These are all things we saw. and, um, and, and another thing that's fascinating here is that the students we talked to, they knew that there were bad things on the internet. They knew that there were things that if they came across them, they should close their laptop and ask the teacher. They knew that there were things that the school filters are going to pick up that will get them into trouble. They knew that they shouldn't look at porn. They talked to us a little about some of those things, but with a sense of shame and knowing that a boundary is being crossed and this is a bad thing and so on. There was none of that shame about talking to us about shopping. Because shop, shopping websites are not bad websites. That's not bad things on the internet. Right? Amazon's not a bad website. Monstertrucktires.com or whatever it was, was it's not a... So there was like a niche here where 
students were seriously misusing their time in class in a way that I think in terms of Christian formation we ought to be concerned about and yet it didn't even feel like crossing a line it didn't feel like anything bad was happening here and they actually felt totally justified in it Um, because sometimes the story in students' head was what the school actually wants from me is task completion and if the technology lets me get the task done faster it gives me more discretionary time and as long as I completed the task and gave the task to the teacher, then there's nothing wrong with me using that discretionary time to go shopping. I earned the right to use that 15 minutes to go shopping. We heard some students taking a step further and, and telling us about how they would do deals with themselves in class, saying, um, I've been given this task to do in class for the next 40 minutes, but I know I can get it done this evening via Moodle. So I'm going to spend the whole 40 minutes now in class going shopping because I'll get the task done. I'll get it turned in. So again, if the student believes that the point of school is task completion, that's, that's a legit trade-off, right? You know, I'm, I'm going to spend 40 minutes shopping now, and in exchange, I'll give you 40 minutes of my evening to get the task done. Um, this was a whole fascinating area. I think there's a lot, there's a lot we need to think about in here. Uh, this was also varied across different classes. This depended a lot on, on teachers' teaching styles. Did the teachers' teaching en- encourage a task completion mentality? Was the focus on getting tasks done? Or was it on deepening learning? That made a difference. Different teachers' rules about technology use. Some teachers actually told students it was fine to go shopping if they completed the task. So there were also inconsistent standards across the school. Um, So just lots of messy stuff going on in here. Um, So this leads into a question, what practices frame engagement? How do we teach students a set of Christian practices for engaging with the world outside the school? And I'm about done here, so I'm going to focus on one example. A teacher told a story about an incident when um, the students discovered this debate about a Muslim event um, going on on an online news website where a whole bunch of Christians had written very ugly things in the comments uh, underneath the story. Uh, What bothered one of these kids was not that the piece was written, but the online responses that were coming back from the Christian community. They were harsh, they were angry, they were ugly, many of them. And we talked about that in class. 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give an answer, but do this with gentleness and respect. That was a huge part of what we did. So we talked about how do we respond? What can you do using this tool and using the internet to bring some grace, to bring change to the world for Christ by bringing some grace even to this little corner of the universe? We saw a number of examples, and yes, it wasn't all teachers, but we saw some teachers. Some teachers, the story went something like this. I need to teach my students a Christian worldview they're going to encounter stuff on the internet that doesn't have a Christian worldview, so we need to filter the content of the internet through a Christian worldview. But the focus is on the content of the websites that you look at. Other teachers had a much stronger focus on what kind of practices do you build up around the act of engaging online. How do you communicate with other people? How do you interact? Uh, How do you put comments on an online comment board? How do you abstain from technology at certain times? How do you handle your shopping behaviours? Right? And this trying to build up a set of formative practices around the act of engagement rather than just thinking about how do we manage the flow of content that's coming through the access conduit. Um, that, I think, is another area worth exploring. So we saw digital technology helping with access, helping with service, helping with witness, helping with exchange. At the same time, there are limits to access and some things that look cool don't seem to be scalable. Online communication loses some things, but sometimes it's still the right way to go because the alternative is not doing it at all. Outward engagement takes a lot of energy, and sometimes teachers have just got too much to do with all the rest of it, and they're not going to do cool projects if they're exhausted all the time. The best stories are not actually very typical. They're not happening most of the school day, as far as we could ascertain. 
Um, the risks is a complicated question, and keeping out porn is the tip of the iceberg. There's other stuff going on. Um, and some teachers are being really thoughtful about trying to lead students into Christian practices around the act of engaging with the world through technology. Um, others are just trying to filter content, and there's a conversation to be had there. If you want to pursue the pedagogy piece of this, the teaching and learning piece, this just came out this summer on Christian teaching. Um, and next summer you will be able to buy the book on technology with the cool title, uh, which will have the data from this presentation and lots and lots of other data on a bunch of other interesting questions about what laptops and tablets and phones and so on are doing in Christian school classrooms. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm done at this point. Uh, so let me just turn to the person next to you and tell them what you were interested, encouraged, or scared by in, uh, in any of that. And now I'll have some type of questions, but just talk for a second.
To, uh, I'm going to interrupt you briefly and offer a chance for questions. If you'd rather talk to each other for another five minutes, the strategy now would be to not to ask anything. That's fine too. Um, but uh, any questions? Yeah. Um, so I noticed that with with the engagement, all the stories of engagement that you are you are going through, there is nothing necessarily Christian about those, that type of engagement. Right. It was more when we talked about, you started talking about the risks, especially from the parental standpoint, that it became explicitly yeah. Christian. Um, so how, how does... Yeah, no, I, th I, think, I think to be fair to the examples, I think some of the best examples, if you do a complete rich description of the whole project, right? So, you know, we, we're connecting with somebody in another country, and this is embedded in some learning where students are being helped to think about the perspectives of that location, their own Christian perspectives. Um, I'm, I'm calling to mind a project that was focused around how disability was handled in a primarily Hindu country and how that related to Hindu belief systems and, and fatalism and, and how a Christian perspective might be different and bringing shalom and, and so on, right? So, so sometimes, you know, the act of reaching out and communicating with another location was very much framed in a uh, both a Christian worldview and a Christian missional kind of framework for the students and the teacher. Um, you'd have to describe them in a lot of detail to get that whole kind of picture. I mean, there's nothing necessarily Christian about the act of sending an email right, and getting a reply. Um, you may be right that I, I, I just, I'm just trying to think, Steve, whether we do have any evidence that well, I also think it's true to say that in a lot of the minds of the people we talk to because it's a Christian school that has a Christian mission statement that says bring change to the world for Christ, then every, anything that looks like bringing change to the world is thought of as Christian. I'm not sure I totally buy that chain of deduction, but, um, but I think it's part of how the framework's working, right? That we're meeting the mission here, and the mission says bring change to the world, and that's because we're a Christian school and Christ transforms everything, right? It's back up the chain, right? So I think there's also that kind of assumption going on, that we're doing the kind of thing that our mission statement talks about, uh, I guess is another answer to this. Now, I also think you're right that, uh, again, I'm not sure that we didn't have a lot of evidence that the parent community thinks about the Christian piece that way, for instance. Um... I also think it's true, and there's other pieces on this, that actually within the school, among the teachers, among administrators and parents, there's seven or eight different stories about what question, what's Christian about Christian education going on. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It actually means there's some different creative things happening. Um, but not everybody's on the same page, even in terms of how you would take the word Christian and apply it to, right? So some people are very focused on protection, and some are very focused on sort of grace, and some are very focused on changing the world, and... Um, and there's a bunch of others. I think I found, I went through all the data for a few weeks and found, I think it was 10 different 
ways of putting faith and teaching and learning together in terms of sort of major themes for that. So you're going to get different answers from different school participants around that as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, assuming that this is a sort of evangelical Christian school, it sounds like a lot of the risks are typical of evangelicals. We're very concerned about sexuality, but materialism gets a free pass. Right. Um, if we can assume that for a second, I'm not sure we can. Do you find anything that there is connected to technology that exacerbates that sort of misconnection or anything inherent to technology, or is that just the technological oh, manifestation yeah. of evangelicals already? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> In part, there's just the real simple thing of how much of the digital world has been expertly designed with a lot of psychological research to make you buy more things, right? I mean, that, that's what it's for, right? or at least a third of it, right? Um, and, um, you know, we're starting to see, I mean, just recently there's been news around uh, some of the early creators of things like Facebook admitting publicly that they designed it to be addictive, right? That that was, that was part of the design brief. So when you've got... Um, I do think one of the fascinating things in here is you've got a device in the classroom which, and I keep wanting to flip-flop, which has all kinds of benefits, right? There's lots of good things in here, but which was also at some level designed to be addictive and the content of which is heavily populated with attempts to get you to think about buying things all the time. Why wouldn't that intensify consumerism in a community that's already pretty well off and heavily consumerist? Right? So, in, in a sense, it's not at all surprising. Um, and, and why wouldn't it be hard to ask Christian questions about that when we really don't want to change that piece? It's easier to rail against the evils of pornography. Um, so, it, it, this comes back to... I mean, this is, this is, in a sense, not a new thing. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Christian Smith's work about a decade ago, soul-searching, massive nationwide study of, te- of, of religious teenagers. Uh, somebody told me recently, who knows um, Chris Smith, that one of his laments about that book is that it got a lot of press, it was talked about everywhere, everybody at least talked as if they'd read it. Um, and, um, but the, the thing that got picked up by churches and talked about over and over again was this line about students believe in moral therapeutic deism. Right? And so what was picked up by churches is students' theology is bad. Right? They need to think differently about God. Right after that, there's a whole chapter where he says the reason they think this way is late consumer capitalism, right? which actually helps structure their consciousnesses to think of themselves as individual choosers of conveniences for their own comfort and satisfaction, and that helps shape their theology. But nobody wanted to pick up that piece of it, right? because, because that's hard. So, um, so yeah, there's some really big questions in that piece that I ask a lot of the church. Um, I, I almost don't know how optimistic I am as, as being able to run that piece. But I, I'm encouraged by seeing some t- teachers doing a better job than others. It's possible to rein it in. Thank you all for coming. Enjoy the rest of your day.